Thanks for listening to the Pop Culture Cosmos and the PCC Multiverse. Check out more great podcasts today on one of these awesome affiliate networks. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. The Tangibound Network. Check it out. Tangiboundnetwork.com. Listen to this show, the latest episode, every time. A proud member of the Good and Geek Network. The opinions expressed are those of each individual. Check out all the other geeky podcasts over at gunnageeknetwork.com and get ready because geekiness begins in 3, 2, 1. On this week's episode, Jamie Foxx returns to the MCU. Star Wars Squadrons sets to great new heights. And can Borat and Conan the Barbarian succeed in 2020? All this and more as we reach our next stop, the PCC Multiverse. Don't be alarmed. The quasi-shimmering light before you is a trans-dimensional gateway to other worlds, other voices, other thoughts, and other realities. Up feels like down, and down feels like the number seven on a Wednesday morning. Don't worry. That quivering, blood-boiling sensation under your eyebrows is all a part of the charm. Welcome to the PCC Multiverse. And we're back with another episode of the PCC Multiverse. This is Gerald Glassford from Pop Culture Cosmos, Game Source, The Lakers Fast Break, and Inside Sports Fantasy Football. We truly appreciate everyone out there listening to all of our great shows. And if you can, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Plus, if you can like, support, subscribe, follow, throw out those Facebook gaming stars, or do whatever you can to support us here at the Pop Culture Cosmos, Inside Sports Fantasy Football, the Lakers Fast Break, and Game Source, it is truly appreciated. Well, he's back indeed, once again stepping in for Josh Peterson, maybe on a more regular basis, I might add, is my good friend indeed, you got to go ahead and check out what he's doing today at Castle FPV on the Twitter. It is Marcus De La Garza. Marcus, great to have you back on once again for the show. Thanks for having me back. It's been fun the last few weeks, and I hope we can keep the uh, the ride going. It's It's been a, a lot of fun just to be here talking to you. It doesn't feel like work. It feels like we're just having fun. Absolutely. Well, Josh certainly doesn't want to hear my voice twice a week. I think he's cool with it for at least a little while, so... We truly appreciate you stepping in for so many weeks right now, and I cannot thank you enough for continuing forward with us. But we got a great show lined up for you today. We're going to be talking about a lot of great things, including Jamie Foxx returning to the MCU. We're going to talk about Star Wars Squadrons coming up here in a sec. South Park had a pandemic special. Does South Park still retain the charm after all these years? And Conan the Barbarian and Borat, it's that same kind of level of greatness that each one has achieved over the course of time. We're going to talk about that coming up in a little bit as well. If you got a chance to check out our Monday program, I did a live unboxing on the air with Josh. And one of the products I got was the Rocket 7.1 ELO USB headset that I'm actually using right now. So it's a little bit different from Audio Technica. I'm using a Rocket R-O-C-C-A-T 7.1 ELO. USB. I'm using the corded version, but it also comes in a wireless and also a stereo version at three different price points. You can look on Amazon, Target. There's so many different outlets that it's going to be on. 
starting October 4th. So I'm going to go ahead and share my thoughts on my time with the Rocket ELO 7.1 USB coming up here on the program, give you a little bit more information on that. Plus also as well, we're going to be talking AEW on TNT. It's one year. We'll see how well they're doing. Plus also as well with Call of Duty, they released a trailer for their zombies because zombies are coming back to Call of Duty in this year's rendition of Call of Duty Cold War. So we're going to talk about that on the show as well. And then also, I have a great interview, Console Wars. Marcus and I spoke so highly of it on last week's program in regards to Console Wars, which is available as a documentary. This really, really good thing you got to go out of your way to see that's on and available at CBS All Access. I got a chance to sit down with the directors of Console Wars, Jonah Tulis and Blake J. Harris. I got a chance to speak to them earlier this week, and I'm going to pop that interview on this show as well. But first, my friend, I want to talk to you real quick from Hollywood Reporter. They're reporting that Jamie Foxx's character, Electro, that we saw in the Andrew Garfield Spider-Mans, yep. is actually going to be appearing in the new Spider-Mans. I'm very excited about this one. It's going to be fun to see him reprise the role, and it's interesting to see what they're doing here you know they're losing some big name stars at the end of the last avengers for the cinematic universe moving forward and so it's kind of nice to see that we're reloading the stables here and you're going out to get somebody that is generally universally loved in jamie fox you don't really find a lot of people that don't like him great actor truly great actor great actor he just great all-around talent at the end of the day tremendous singer as well you're right (laughs) Yeah, great all-around talent. So I'll be very excited to see what he brings to the next movie. And I'm pretty excited to see how he integrates into the storyline here moving forward for the long term for the cinematic universe. I am as well. It's going to be interesting what kind of new twist they can put on the Electro character because his character in that movie, uh, I don't know if it was uh, greatly rewarded or was greatly applauded. I mean, obviously, he's a tremendous actor, like we said, but I know that movie itself, Sony liked it so much, they rebooted the franchise. So that tells you anybody associated with it. I thought, well, maybe they would not be well thought of in the realm of Sony. But obviously, Jamie Foxx is so well thought of within the confines of Marvel, the MCU, and especially Sony that he will be... A, most likely appearing at some point within the realm of the newest Spider-Man, which is going to be the third version of the Spider-Man, the third rendition of the Spider-Man, whenever that hits theaters, I think late next year, if I'm not mistaken. So that tells me right there that is going to be of some interest as far as his character, not just being a one-and-done villain, and there you go. You know, we're looking at a December 2021 timeline for this release. As of now. And, and I got to say, of now. as of now. And I know I made that promise a couple of weeks ago about not talking about timelines anymore. And then we violated that promise anyways last week. But I'm going to go ahead and talk about timelines one more time and just say that. You can always talk about it because right now you're <laughs> going to have to continue it. But yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and say that as long as we can stay on timeline here, let's be honest with ourselves. <laughs> That's a very lofty goal here, December 17th, 2021 right now. Absolutely. Anything relating to that is definitely going to be uh, something that we have to be wary of as far as the timeline is concerned. But having Jamie Foxx returning the Electro character, having him come back for Spider-Man 3 with Tom Holland is going to be very interesting how they work in that character moving forward. And then if it was clearly worded in this Hollywood Reporter article 
that was exclusive to them and give them props for getting it that the MCU is going to be involved somehow as far as his involvement somewhere in the timeline. The MCU. I'm very curious to see where that falls and how that falls for his future in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What are your thoughts on Jamie Foxx returning to Marvel, Spider-Man, and possibly even the MCU? Share us your thoughts, popculturecosmos at yahoo.com. Also got a lot of things to talk about here. Again, we've got another great interview with Jonah Tulis and Blake J. Harris from Console Wars, the documentary that's now available on CBS All Access coming up in a bit for everyone out there listening on radio and also every podcast outlet. But first, I want to talk this weekend, my friend, Star Wars Squadrons. It's hitting, uh, you could say it's still hitting store shelves, but for most people out there in the middle of a pandemic, they're still going to be buying it digitally because digitally is becoming more and more a reality as far as the way people are buying their games that is hitting digitally and also retail store shelves this weekend. Price point is not too bad, $39.99. That's really something that surprised a lot of people. Early reviews for the single player adventure have come out and they are pretty good, pretty strong. A lot of sevens, eights, and even a nine here and there. Very impressed by it as far as the reviews and things of that nature. But I want to hear your thoughts. To me, the multiplayer experience is obviously what's going to sell this game because no matter how good this narrative is, it's going to be something that is not can't be very long for a $40 game. It's you know maybe about six, eight hours, something like that, I think is what, what most people are saying it's going to be roughly in. But still, it's still worth your time. But I want to hear your thoughts on the future for Star Wars Squadrons you could keep putting DLC on this, you could keep putting DLC. They're supposedly minimizing the amount of transactions because of the heat they got for Star Wars Battlefront and all that mess, <laughs> which we saw come up again earlier this week for FIFA in their advertising on a kids' magazine. I thought was really way to go. But I want to hear your thoughts on Star Wars Squadrons. Is it something you're excited to play starting this weekend? I'm going to go ahead and say this right now. I just canceled my PlayStation Plus membership a couple weeks ago just because I was getting ready to anticipate the release of the PS5. And I just wanted that and kind of just delay. I didn't really need to pay for it right now. I've got two or three months off before I buy my next console. But that's about to change. My wife is going out of town this weekend. And at $40, why would I not buy this game and play it for three days straight? It's going to be fun. I do want to give a shout out to Charlie Hall over at Polygon. Did a great review on it, really in-depth. But he talks about how he spent three days in the cockpit and he just got lost. And watching the reveal trailers for the multiplayer stuff, I got lost in it. There's a lot of customization you can do on the fighter itself for your player. A lot of customization all around. This is going to be a really, really great game for $40. And I can't believe that's the, the starting point that it's coming out at. I almost feel like there should be a catch. I almost feel like there should be something like EA, because this is EA. Gonna say, right. Yeah, and EA has such an outstanding, sterling reputation, and I'm being so sarcastic when I say that, being voted once, twice, or I think maybe even three times the worst company in America, and the Star Wars Battlefront microtransaction issue, or almost a version of video game gambling with the loot boxes and with FIFA. They're trying to do it now with the packs and all that. But I want to hear your thoughts as far as this game. Just It really just, to me, it, I cannot believe you're getting something out of this this good. Coming off of Star Wars Fallen Order and how well mm-hmm. that game was perceived, this seems to be like on the surface. We'll see how sales are, are going to end up this Christmas. 
On the surface, this seems like the second win in a row for Star Wars for EA. Anybody who buys it and, and plays it this weekend, please let us know. The fleet battles that you get into in the multiplayer online modes are supposed to be epic. And it's only 5v5, so it's 10 players total on, on the fleet battles. But you're being hit with constant actions to be doing, objectives to hit. And it sounds like this is going to be the mainstay for the entire... And not even sounds like it was in the in the trailers. I mean, it's it's been everywhere that this is going to be the, the mainstay for this entire game. So I'm very much looking forward to it. If I do get it this week, and I'll be tweeting my experience. So make sure you follow me on Twitter at CastleFPB, K-A-S-T-L-E-F-P-B. But yes, it is Star Wars Squadrons. It is coming out this weekend, available on all the major formats, including PC, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One. So a lot of people are very excited for that. And if you're excited for Star Wars Squadrons, we do want to hear your thoughts. PopCultureCosmos at Yahoo.com. Hey, this is Chad from Ghost Toasters, and you're listening to Pop Culture Cosmos Podcast. Needing an edge for your fantasy football team? Listen to the guys at Inside Sports Fantasy Football for insight that will help you reach your league championship. That's Inside Sports Fantasy Football. Check it out today on your favorite podcast outlet. Well, there's still a lot more to talk about on today's program before we even get to a really great interview that I did earlier this week with Jonah Tulis and Blake J. Harris of Console Wars. South Park had a pandemic special. Got a lot of advertising, <laughs> got a lot of promotion. You know, South Park is doing what it can to shock and awe, even after so many years doing this for Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Uh, I mean, it's something that I was really into South Park for so many years. I understand that they came back and they tried to go ahead and go out of the way to offend everybody right now at this point in time. And that's up to them. That's all political and all things like that. But of course, they're going to go ahead and touch on this issue because they love touching upon current issues. That's why the show still is so popular. I really was into it for the 90s. And then life got in the way or things like nature. It's really been hard for me to get back into it. I did love their efforts as far as Team America World Police. Of course, the South Park movie, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, which, again, people laugh at me when I say this. Before I saw Hamilton, it's, it was the best musical I had ever seen. Because you have to treat it as a musical. <laughs> See, you laugh you at me when I say that. Yeah, no, no, I, I'm I'm laughing because it's true. <laughs> it's true because people people laughed it, but then they realized that they watch it and they saw it, and it's like you're right, Gerald. They went into it as a serious musical with a whole bunch of not so serious jokes that they throw in there from not so serious characters. But they went into it and they treated it as a, it's just a, okay. I'm getting off topic here, but yeah, if you get a chance, watch South Park bigger, longer, and a cut, you'll, you'll realize that it's a truly outstanding musical. But getting back to the show itself, do you still find it as irreverent and fresh as many people have for so many years? I mean, does it still have that South Park magic? To me, it does, but it's been modified throughout the years. And, and I think you said it best. They've shifted the way they, they built the episodes throughout the years. It's still rapidly built. It's still rapidly animated. It's still that classic South Park. But... It feels like a few years ago, they just decided we're done. We're just going to offend as many people as we can. That's it. And I'll be all. And so just watching the pandemic special last night, you could see it on display there. They went after the anti-maskers. They went after the people that are pro-mask that are 
too overly pro mask, which I don't think is actually a thing. But nobody was safe last night, per usual. And I actually really, 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 really enjoyed it. Very true to life right now. It feels like a lot of the things that we're seeing in real life, they just parroted and took to the extreme like they normally do. But a couple of the things that really, really stuck out to me, chin diapers. They mass shamed everybody in that in that special uh, yesterday. And I don't know if you watched it at all, Gerald, did you? Yes, I did. So. Oh, God. The, the chin diapers, the mass shaming they did, the Mickey Mouse appearance again. I wasn't expecting that one. They but... go after Disney with a vengeance on that show. Oh, my God. They, they went after Mulan even in, yes. in their discussions. It's outstanding. I thought that was probably the most accurate, fantastical retelling of what we've been going through. <laughs> if you can have an accurate, fantastical retelling, that so... is. But. It still has that charm. It still has that relevance. It still has that interest. It does for, for me. It does for me. I did watch the early seasons and I did take a break from South Park for a while, but I came back in 2014, 2015-ish and I've been hooked ever since. It's, it's, it feels like the crassness has been ratcheted up a little bit, not a little bit, a lot bit, and we're finally at a point with society that we can deal with that. Absolutely. So... I, I agree with you. It still has that irreverence. I don't pop in every week anymore. I pop in on major things. I think a lot of people do at this point because you have a series that's run so long. A lot of people just, they just don't have the time to pop in every week. So they pop in for the major stuff like what happened with heavily promoted pandemic specials. So we'll see where the series can go from here because they base everything off of the real life events that what happens in our world. So as long as real life comes into play, and still is as crazy as ever, then you will continue to see South Park as crazy as ever and still be relevant and still get the ratings that they do and still be something that Comedy Central can actually use as a foundation, still continuing going forward. What are your thoughts out there on the South Park pandemic special? We want to hear your thoughts. Was it too crazy for you? Did they go over the line? If they haven't yet for you, then you've got no line to cross. But they usually try to go out of their way to offend someone, but I want to hear your thoughts on South Park. Did you enjoy it? Share us your thoughts, popculturecosmos at yahoo.com. But speaking of stuff that has been around a while, that's trying to reach out to a 2020 generation, we just saw the trailer for Borat. New Borat, which is called, I love these, I love how Borat has always these, this, the, the titles are just uh, so out there. I mean, obviously we, we saw the Borat, the, one that had the extra long title, but this one still offbeat. Borat Subsequent Movie Film is the title of the newest Borat film, the sequel. I think 14 years later, as he says in the trailer, and it is coming just before election time. Huh, fancy that to Amazon Prime. I believe it's coming to Amazon Prime later this month. So the first trailer came out for this week. In fact, I want to ask you this, my friend. Can Borat a sequel because Sasha Baron Cohen and one of these days I think he's going to be the next comedic actor to really hit on a serious role but I think he will at some point in time get one of those roles like we saw Adam Sandler last year uh, right, or, right. Uh, yeah so I think he's the next big major comedian to do, have a, a role like that where a serious role where he can score but getting back to what he does right now and what he does best do you think Borat will actually strike twice we briefly touched on this before the show started, and I, I do want to say that I hope it does, but sequels generally have a, a pretty steep uphill battle 
I don't know if this one's going to be any different than any other sequel. I hope it is. Just looking at the trailer and kind of reading through some of the, the stuff on it, they received a little bit of assistance from Universal in the filming of this. It wasn't really called out. It was a Hollywood Reporter re article. It wasn't called out if that was financial assistance, production assistance, whatever it was. Universal had a little bit of a hand in it, but at the end of the day, Sasha Baron Cohen still owns the entire rights to this entire film. And so getting ending up at Amazon, I think that's going to be one of the best things they could have done. That's where they're going to make the most money at right now. Or either and that or Netflix, because they've been announcing what the ratings are for the past couple months. Nielsen's been trying to get a little bit better beat on it, and Netflix has dominated the streaming ratings. But with the boys, Amazon has finally struck gold with something that has garnered them huge ratings. I expect the Lord of the Rings series, once that hit, that will also get huge ratings. So will Borat be that type of windfall for them as well? I think it can, especially around the time it's being released just before the election later this month. And I think the timing is very on point. I think it was intentional. And I'm looking forward to seeing what Borat 2, called, again, Borat subsequent movie film, will do for audiences going forward. No, I was just going to say, it's it's a again, it's a super long title. It's Borat subsequent movie film, delivery of a prodigious bribe to American regime to make benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. <laughs> I wasn't going to go ahead in this one. So it's actually a longer movie title than the first one if you read the whole first movie's title out so it's a humdinger i mean he, that's a joke in and of itself right there for you it so, is it yeah, is so, <laughs> even if you can't laugh at the movie you can at least laugh at the extra long titles that he puts each and every time out so it is sasha Absolutely. baron cohen reviving the borat character one more time and we want to hear your thoughts if you're interested in catching it later this month popculturecosmos at yahoo.com but conan the barbarian a new series in development was also announced. I think it's coming to Netflix, if I'm not mistaken. It uh, is. Yeah, and I want to ask you thoughts on this. I got feedback from someone that I, when I reported it on Pop Culture Cosmos on Facebook that they did not think it would work in this day and age. I want to hear your thoughts on that. Conan Exiles, the game, it didn't come out to great reviews, but it's had enough of a following as far as surviving, as far as that's concerned. But Conan the Barbarian, I know it came out with Jason Momoa. He had a try at that the character way back when. I know a lot of people have forgotten that, so obviously it tells you that it wasn't very much well thought of. Can Conan the Barbarian work in a new streaming environment? I absolutely think it can. This is going to be an interesting ride for this franchise moving forward. From a global perspective, they're just trying to acquire intellectual property right now. And they want stuff that really resonates across the world. And fortunately or not, Conan the Barbarian does, right? And it's still being played in, in many countries around the world. And people still love this show just as much as they did when it first was on the air. So just Netflix grabbing this alone, great sign. I would be interested, and Tech Radar had a, a decent article on it earlier today about how this might be another series in the same vein as like The Witcher, right? That's what if I we was going to tell you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we can have something in that same vein, absolutely. This is going to be a successful series. If you have anything other than that, I think this is going to struggle to either resonate with current viewers or just grab anybody. This is going to be a hit or miss, and I think as long as they continue on the same path that they've already announced, we're good. I mean, because we have no showrunner, we've got no writer. We've, well, we've it's rumored we've, we've got no cast, but I'm sure we at least have one person that started talking to in this in this process, so... This is going to be a fun one, 
it's gonna really gonna be a hit or miss though i i can't tell you right off the bat whether or not it's going to be successful in today's environment. I hope it is, but only time will tell. Only time will tell indeed, because Jason Momoa, before he reached the stardom that he has with Aquaman, he tried the role and it didn't quite work out. But we saw it be a huge success for Arnold Schwarzenegger. We'll see what happens. Like you said, it's got to have that charismatic actor in that lead role. Yeah. See what's going to happen going forward for that to be any type of success. We've seen, like you said, something similar in The Witcher, which has done so well for Henry Cavill in his role playing The Witcher. And that obviously that's been big for Netflix. They're already talking about a spinoff that they're doing and things of that nature. So I'm interested to see where Netflix is going to go with Conan the Barbarian and where Amazon is going to succeed or not succeed with the latest Borat. I have a feeling Borat of the two is the safer bet simply because of the fact that you're going to see a ton of advertising on that just before the election because it comes out just before the election right here in the United States. So I'm interested to see how this lines up, but I'd say of the two, I'm betting more on Borat. The only reason I'm going to hang my hat on Conan right now is the hope that if it does succeed, we're going to see a lot of spinoffs for that entire franchise. You'll see some of the, the older movies come back, whether in TV show form or just a total remake. Absolutely. So we'll definitely see what happens when it comes to what we're picking out down the road with Borat coming up later this month, the sequel. And you can go ahead and read the long title if you want to. I'm just going to call it Borat Subsequent Movie Film, sequel <laughs> to Borat. And to read that long title if you want on your own. And then also a new Conan the Barbarian is in development at Netflix. So we want to hear your thoughts if you're excited for one or the other. But definitely want to hear thoughts if both will succeed, both will not, or if one or the other will go ahead and have their way with audiences. Here's your thoughts, popculturecosmos at yahoo.com. AEW, All Elite Wrestling, they've been on TNT for a year. They had an anniversary recently. It hasn't certainly been a failure because on Wednesday nights, competing against the WWE's NXT, they've gone ahead of NXT virtually every week. Right now, they're averaging anywhere between 850,000 and a million viewers. This down from the premiere one year ago, because that, I think, earned 1.4 million, or in and around there, if I remember correctly. 850,000 to 1 million viewers is a really good number right now, considering the competition that they go against on Wednesday nights. In fact, splitting the audience for pro wrestling fans because you have NXT on that same night at the same time, just like the old days, Raw and Nitro. So I want to hear your thoughts on AEW a year later. Has it been a success? TNT certainly thinks so because they've signed them to a contract for three years. So at least it's got three years to go ahead and prove themselves. Yeah, I think this has been a, a great success, good resurgence in professional wrestling. This is a medium that's kind of faltered over the last decade, I would say. And it's nice to see it on the upswing again. You know, I, I had no clue that TNT was hosting AEW until about February-ish, when a friend of mine, Nat Pagan, actually was telling me about it. And it was a trade-off, actually. It was I was telling her about NASCAR. She was telling me about AEW. And from there, I've started to follow along. And so anytime they have a big event, I'm not watching it live, but I'll, I'll go back and take a look and watch the highlights from their events now. It's got me to the point now I'm ready to start tuning in weekly. That's going to be a, quite the argument with the wife, but... You know, it might just be DVR on YouTube TV moving forward, and I'll just watch it after the fact. We'll, we'll see how it goes. 
But I'm very excited by this, and their numbers are, are going up again, like you were talking about. They did have that rough spot in the middle there where they were down at you know, 650, 690,000 viewers a week, but they're back up to 835,000 for Dynamite, right? And yeah. that's those are great numbers, man. Yeah, and they're, you, they're not playing on the same day all the time because of the NBA playoffs. So they're not usually right. playing. Yeah, so you got to put that into consideration. Yeah, so, I mean, they're going up against it right now, and I think their numbers are showing that, you know, on the other side of the playoffs here when TNT gets its normal network programming back or no, normal which network it has. schedule it's, back. It's now back because the NBA Well, yeah, finals, yeah. yeah. Yep. Speaking of which, you guys are doing some great work over at the Lakers fast break right now. Well, thank, uh, you. It's, it's, thank you. It's been fun listening to that. So if you haven't had a chance, go listen to Lakers fast break with Gerald and all the other guys. It's It's been fun, but this is going to be a fun final series. We'll, we'll leave that discussion over there. Okay, but, thank you. <laughs> and there's plenty of discussion I, I will say that but thank you for the kind work yeah but it's it's been fun to watch aew getting back here to the topic at hand for a second i'm looking forward to the fact that you know you've actually got guys that are longtime wrestlers cody rhodes chris jericho and it's fun to to see the network put a lot of faith in in the performers here the guys that know what sells well to the audience and that's the thing. I mean, I could go with you into a deep dive in AEW on what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, why they're connected to the audience, why they're not. I'm not going to go old school Jim Cornette because Jim Cornette hates AEW right now with a passion. I've been a little bit harsh early on with what AEW was doing, but and it could always be the same thing with WWE. Their storylines, characters, who they're pushing, who they're not. We could go on all day about this. Right now, you just got to go ahead and give the AEW a big compliment for being something that people are watching every time out, getting a three-year prove-it from TNT. They've got three years to go ahead and work on AEW. They're not on a case-by-case, week-by-week basis. The fact that TNT is going out of the way, they're promoting them because we saw liberally uh, just a lot of advertisements from TNT with AEW all over it. Uh, and it just it shows you the confidence they have for the network going forward. What are your thoughts out there on AEW on TNT one year later? Share us your thoughts. PopCultureCosmos at Yahoo.com. Well, coming up next, for everybody listening out there on audio, on podcasts, or radio stations worldwide, is a great interview that I had with Blake J. Harris, the author of Console Wars, who's also one of the directors of the documentary Console Wars, which is now available on CBS All Access, along with Jonah Tulis. I had a great conversation with both of them. And also, dropping names, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg were executive producers on it along with them. So I got a great conversation coming up with them right after the break. This is the PCC Multiverse. Coming soon, Zero Cool Films presents Action Figure Adventure. Super collector Jay Bartlett hits the road once again in search of action figures, most iconic and noteworthy and rare figures, all in the name of creating the most ultimate action figure auction ever. He fronts the cash that charity benefits in the end. What will he get, how will he get it, and how well will he do? Find out November 1st, 2020. All right, and we're back with the program. It's Gerald Glassford coming right back at you here at the Pop Culture Cosmos. I'm so excited because I get to go ahead and relive some of my early adulthood. I know when anybody talks to these guys, it's like, oh, yeah, I get to relive my childhood. I get to relive my childhood. But with me, it's since I'm old, early adulthood. But still, it was a fun time in the early 90s with the battle going on between Nintendo and Sega. And it is all documented and detailed. First off, the amazing book that came out 
Console Wars. And if you haven't read the book yet, I highly suggest it. It's Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation, written by Blake J. Harris. It's available today on various formats, including Amazon that you're seeing right there on Facebook Live also as well. It's available at Barnes & Noble. You can get it today. It's really a great read. Forwards there by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. And you know what? They liked it so much, they helped these guys out as far as making a documentary that's now available on CBS All Access. And I highly, highly suggest that you go ahead and check it out today. I saw it last week. Marcus De La Garza saw it last week. We were both extremely impressed with it. I highly recommend it. It is Console Wars on CBS All Access. And I have the directors and also the author of Console Wars. That's Blake Harris. And of course, his fellow director on the project, Jonah Tulis. And guys, it's great to have you on the program. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you so much. Blake, uh, I want to start with you because obviously this emanates from the outstanding book and the, the reception that it got over the years. I told you before we went on the program that one of my other co-hosts, Josh Peterson, who does the Monday show with me, he turned me on to this book. He loved the Genesis. He loves that era of time, that console generation. And he said, check out this book. And I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And I'll tell you what, it was definitely worth the read. Obviously put great detail in the whole background, the backstory of it. Tell me exactly the response to it, how it was so great, and then just approach with Jonah and go ahead and create this awesome documentary. Yeah, so uh, it was life-changing for me and for us. And actually, you know, the story begins back in 2011. Jonah and I, even back then, we had been writing partners and producing partners, and Jonah had directed. And, and so we started talking about this story. And so even at the earliest stage, when I was thinking about doing a book, telling that to Jonah, telling him I thought there might be a good scripted story here, like The Social Network, and he suggested doing a documentary. So it's actually something that had been on our radar that we were actively working on off and on for the past eight years. So you know, it was a, very, it was a parallel, concurrent process with the research for the book. Uh, you know, Obviously, I was speaking with these people and getting to spend time with them when we started filming in 2013 was very helpful to me writing the book. But, you know, this this documentary is something that has been in the hopper that we've been working on for a long time. So it feels so good to finally get it out there because it's just this incredible business story, this incredible human story that we always feel really fortunate to tell. And obviously, like your your co-host point, you know, it touched a lot of people. Yes. And, and also to your point, like, let's face it, early adulthood is better than childhood. So, like, that's that's better to have the memories of the Genesis tied to those, those better years. Um, well, I, I, like I said, for me, I, I experienced it. I got, I had both. I was right in the middle of the war. And obviously as a young adult at that time, I, I had a little bit better perspective out, but I don't have as much of the nostalgic factors. Like, wow, I opened up one for Christmas. Like I'm sure you guys right. hear the stories as far as that's concerned. Mine was the Atari 2600 and Pong as far as me. Ah, wow, wow, wow. By then, I was like, okay, these are the latest systems. They're both (laughs) working against each other. You know, I didn't have to go ahead and take a side. I wanted to go ahead and get both. But, you you know, I mean, it just really the response during that time. And you saw and you guys outlined the great battle between those two. Jonah, I want to ask you this. When you go ahead and you mapped everything out with Blake, from book to documentary, how did you go ahead and storyboard? Because obviously you can't put everything that was detailed in that book within the framework of what was it, 90 minutes? Uh, 90 you know? minutes, yeah. Yeah, so 
you can't frame everything in it, but you have to give a nice outline so you can have the audience recognize, hey, this is something that was very important to pop culture. Well, the first thing we did, you know, sort of Blake, when we first started this project, Blake, you know, had started reaching out to a couple people and more people and more people and eventually interviewed over 200 people. And through those interviews, we kind of figured out who were these sort of dozen or so key players who could tell the story best, who are going to be the most dynamic. And of course, the people who were in the most powerful positions at the time. Uh, so once we kind of isolated those people and we're like, these are the people we feel like should tell the story. And again, we ended up having to cut some because there was there was even too many. We wanted to make sure every single character kind of really had a place in this. And it wasn't just like a one off line. And, you know, we didn't have a narrator. These were the characters telling their own story. No outsiders or no experts. And I think we just we went deep in the characters and we kind of figured out, OK, what are the key points that we want to get across and what are the things because certain things represent other things you know there's the launch of sonic 2 is representative of a lot of the kind of launch we were doing if we did too many of those we would have lost some of the heart of a, a movie because you know that would take six or eight or ten or twelve hours if we you know you know hit rock the rock and yeah. sega's groundhog day so we really had to you know pare it down as best we could and sort of make sure that we focused on the core fight between Sega and Nintendo and then of course Sega versus Sega of Japan. Absolutely. And again, you know, it, it's outlines it in such great detail in the in the movie, but it even does an even better job in the book because also talks about you know at the very end you guys had and I'll give away a little bit of spoilers here because it's actually just That's history. It's, it's a history lesson yeah. per se about yeah, Sony's nonfiction. It, it all happened. In yeah, real life. it all happened. Absolutely, the crazy things that went on, the battles, the infighting, the Japan versus the United States when it comes to Sega. You know, obviously the bad blood between Nintendo and Sega. Tom Kalinske pulling out his hair probably before your very eyes during that course of time because you know all the things that went on that. He tried to go ahead and push, and I'll talk to you about Tom Kalinske in a sec, because obviously everything seems to center around him for obvious reasons. But I want to ask you this. Sony is on the back end of this, almost like an observer going on that wanted to get their piece of the pie. So them coming in at what the very end of this uh, is also very influential as well, because it led to the PlayStation, correct? Yeah, directly led to the PlayStation. You know, one of the interesting things, like like to your point, they were almost like an impartial observer or more of an objective observer because during this 90s, late 80s, early 90s heyday, Sega and Nintendo were in the hardware business, but Sony purely was in the software business with yeah. Ubisoft. So they were just looking at this like, who, whose system should we be on? And then to see them go from that perspective based on what they learned from Sega and what they learned from Nintendo and being spurned by Sega and being spurned from Nintendo to start their own thing, which obviously you know has driven the game industry over the past 25 years, even more so than Microsoft, who entered later. Like, like Joe and I always say, truth is stranger than fiction. Like if we, had, we say, like if we had scripted this, it wouldn't, no one would have believed us. The fact that Sega had the chance to potentially have both of these systems, like the PlayStation or the N64, the fact that they ended up losing those systems, the fact that they, you know, sort of both snubbed Sony and that was the company that defeated them. It's just very poetic and Shakespearean. It is indeed. It is. The way you described in the book and the way it actually appears in the film is like you said, with, with Sony having that influence at the very end and you saw what it led to where it is today. In fact, the wars itself during the 90s, Jonah, was very influential in creating a lot of things we see out of the video game industry up until, in many cases, recently. Like you said, the Tuesday release, which was something that I think that was born or the first spawned. World War, yeah, it was yeah, really started the first there. World War launch, yeah. Which was followed religiously 
by the industry until recent times where now it seems like they want to go ahead with a movie release for big games. They want to release it out on Fridays and things of that nature that we're seeing now. But still, a lot of games these days release things on Tuesday, and that all emanates from that period of time. But you see a lot of the advertising. You see a lot of things going on today with that. Tell me when you're creating this film, the influences that you have, and you see, oh, yeah, I can still see from there then what I see today? Well, from a marketing perspective, people, I feel like when we aren't asked too much about sort of that, I mean, their, their advertising was fully MTV generation, you know, Jeff could be leading the pack. And that was his first national campaign. He ended up creating got milk down the line. You know, this was the beginning of an advertising revolution in the same, in the same sense. And it's funny up until at least a few years ago, I think uh, Jeff had come full circle and he was uh, working for Nintendo funny enough (laughs) as their ad agency. I think the real thing that we always talk about is how this is the first real competition of these two companies going head to head. And what they really did was force these other companies to get better and better and better so that the consumers were the ones who won in the end because they were getting a better product. And we're still seeing that today with uh, Sony and Microsoft. It's, it's They're pushing each other to make the best things possible for their audience. Do you think they can learn any lessons from what was went on in the console wars of the 90s? Because we're heading into a new console generation come november with the xbox series x and s and and obviously what's going on with the playstation 5 well i think i think it was a much different kind of console war i think that you know for sega nintendo for sega for it was like a band of misfits and you know if they didn't succeed the company was going to go bust whereas you have sony and microsoft who are huge corporations and nintendo let's not leave them out oh nintendo yeah well you know it's funny we we kind of keep them in a separate bracket we think of that they're they're still doing their own thing and they've kind of followed their path. Again, they've strayed along the way. They've done the play it loud campaign. They've, you know, strayed a few things along the way, but they're still focused in doing what they want to do and, and making the games they want. And they're still successful at it. But I do think the separate console war is really Xbox versus PlayStation. You never hear about Nintendo really in that console war. And people are so passionate about it. It's sort of Nintendo's own thing. It's always going to be around and it's always going to do what it does and it does best. Always raking in that cash. I'm telling you. <laughs> you, you hear any, anything success about PlayStation 4, over 100 million sold, Xbox buying Bethesda to set up this new generation. And then you hear Nintendo just breaking records all the time as far as what they're doing. Just just hanging on the low, on the down low, just right there, just selling more and more. And family and the parents, they all want to buy Mario and they all want to buy Nintendo even to this day. I mean, are you surprised, Blake, at all that Nintendo has stayed to this tried and true formula of basing their entire foundation around a select few characters and obviously the games that they represent? It's definitely a unique company. I can't think of any other like it. I mean, the only parallel is Disney, but Disney encompasses so much now. Yeah. You know, with uh, even with the Lucas Arts and Marvel, and you know, it, it's a big umbrella that they're all under. Had we not done this research, I would be very surprised by Nintendo, how Nintendo operates. But now understanding who they are and why they were that way, it makes a lot of sense that they are quality focused product development focused company, don't care that much about the marketing, very close-lipped, very controlling for better or for worse. And to your point, it's been working for them. And as time continues to march on, content becomes more and more of a role. The hardware becomes a little bit more commoditized. The software is the key. And that's why I think Microsoft's acquisition of Bethesda is huge. You know, you're gonna, I think you're going to see a lot more stuff like that in this next generation. And as we move more towards streaming-based gaming, potentially, or cloud-based gaming, 
but yeah, I, I really tip my cap to Nintendo. You know, even since the book came out, I, I, Nintendo had lost its way a little bit six years ago, but I think they've done a great job with the Amiibos and with the Switch coming back from the Wii U. The book, the final section of the book is called The Tortoise and the Hare, and Nintendo really does have this slow, methodical path, and they have not really strayed from it. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, doesn't. but in the long run, it works because they really put quality first and focus on those core titles. Absolutely. I mean, they had the success, obviously, around that time with the NES. And then, obviously, after that, they went to the N64, which is a huge success for them. Then GameCube, you yeah, will, not so <laughs> yeah, not not so much. But then, obviously, it emanated into the Wii not so much on the Wii U, like you said, and then right back into the Switch again. So they've hit highs and lows, but they, like you said, they've stayed to that tried and true formula that has seemingly worked for them or will work for them at least in one console generation or the other. I also tip my cap to them for being innovative. You know, like when we think about a tortoise and a tortoise versus hare sort of style battle, you think that the tortoise is much more conservative and Nintendo is fiscally and all that, but you know, the Wii with the motion controllers was a huge innovation. That was yeah. a big risk. Even the Wii U, which uh, was had was problematic for some Rest reason. in peace. You know, and like they were at least trying something different, a sort of tablet-esque yeah. console. And then now you see a much more of a handheld, like a dual home console handheld switch. So uh, like it's really impressive how much innovation they bring into their products when we think of them as more of a conservative company. I want to ask real this quick, you know, if somebody were to go back in time and take a look at the 90s and take a look at the console wars as being maybe an example of that period of time in the 90s, I see it very competition heavy during that period of time as far as the 90s, whether it was sports with Sosa versus Maguire with a home run battle, pro wrestling, WCW and WWF were similar to what we saw with Sega and Nintendo. They had a share of the lead for a period of time. When you look back and all the work and what you created, when you guys were going ahead and creating the movie and whatnot, and obviously taking the great work from your book, Blake, do you see it more as an example of the 90s as a whole? I, I do. I, well, the 90s was a special time. I, uh, beyond the nostalgia, you know, this was really before cell phones were really prevalent. It was before the internet really kind of took hold. It was us going to our friends playing video games. It was, you know, watching wrestling on TV, like you were saying, or watching, you know, Maguire versus Sosa. So these events became even bigger because there were less distractions around. But at the same time, the 90s was such a special time. Like we even like the archival footage is one of the things in the film that really made us excited because we kind of wanted to create a time capsule of that time. You know, you see Hulk Hogan, Vanna White sort of appearing in this. You see Paul Rudd when he was a kid in a commercial. You see all these moments and it brings you back to that time. And I do think from a competition standpoint, I do think it's because there was more ability to focus on these competitions because these were the big events of the time. Sega Nintendo, this was what kids did. You know, they did that or they tried to rush home to watch the TV shows that they like to watch, but sometimes they'd miss them because they couldn't get home in time. Sega Nintendo was a, was a battle that stood out because of this. With Tom Kalinske being at the head of all this, running Sega of America during that period of time at its heyday, this is not by far and away his greatest success. That's something you guys get across. Is he was part of so many different campaigns with Barbie and so much more. Uh, he seemed to have, I don't want to say he had the Midas touch per se, but my gosh, he seemed, everything he seemed to be working on seemed to do extremely well. Isn't that right, Blake? Yeah, I mean, it might not be his greatest success because he's had so many good ones, but it's, I would say it's his most unlikely. And yeah. it was something, I'm glad it resonated because we really wanted to get that across because he is a, just an incredible guy. 
you know, sort of a role model to us in certain ways and somebody who we were surprised was just not as well known as he should be. And then also because we would, you know, challenge ourselves when when thinking about the movie and thinking about the book, you know, let's be clear, Tom Klinsky did not have anything to do with the programming of Sonic. You know, he yeah. didn't actually make the games. So to give him credit for running the business and being the CEO of Sake of America, you know, we want to make sure that it's not that he's not just a beneficiary of good timing. And like all success stories, that is part of it. But the fact that, like you said, he sort of had this Midas touch from the 60s with the Flintstones, Trumal Vitamins, the 70s with Mari, the 80s with He-Man Master Universe, like, you know, lightning doesn't just continually strike around this guy by accident. There's something yeah. more to this guy. And, you know, what a great protagonist for us to be able to, to follow and to see the story through his fish out of water eyes as we learn the game industry through him. I think that people sort of really love the idea of the game of creators and the Miyamoto's of the world you know, for Nintendo, but you forget that, you know, when you have 5% of the market, Nintendo is 95% of the market. You need that Tom Kalinske to come in there and run down to Walmart and paint the town blue and make sure that they can get into stores. You really, I mean, you forget that these are the guys who really lit a fire that gets Onik out there and to sort of make it a thing in the United States. Absolutely. I mean, all the things that they did here in the States to get the Genesis at the heights to where it was at, and the battles, even internally with Sega Japan and Sega Japan battles with Sega of America on the direction <laughs> of the console itself is truly fascinating. And whether you're reading the book or you're watching the documentary, it's truly a fascinating follow as far as to see all that dichotomy between the inner battles between the company itself, even before the battle with Nintendo itself. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like Jordan and I playing devil's advocate would ask ourselves, like, well, what would Sega have been like without Tom Kolinsky? And you almost have the perfect control variable, Sega of Japan. Like, same products, roughly the same pricing, but no Tom Kolinsky. And they were very unsuccessful with the 16-bit Mega Drive in Japan. And to your point, one of the more fascinating aspects and one of the more compelling aspects of the story is that nominally it's a battle between Sega and Nintendo and that's what we all remember and that's what drove the business but what actually led to Sega's downfall was this other battle this internal civil war between Sega of America and Sega of Japan and there's a lot of lessons to be learned there and also a lot of frustrations for those of us who loved Sega and would have loved to see them continue to be very successful. Absolutely and it just spawned out into an awesome documentary and of course a truly incredible book but before we head on out, i got to ask you one last question. The foreword on your book, and obviously the executive producers of your movie, are Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, who, needless to say, are you know having a little bit of success right now on some certain projects, <laughs> the, <laughs> the boys, and some other things that they're doing. But obviously your documentary right now is their newest success. And, what, and they also wrote a foreword for your book as well. So they can go ahead, and anybody out there wants to go ahead and read that, they can go ahead again. As people are watching on Facebook Live right there on Amazon, Console Wars, but they executive produced your movie. How big of an influence, how much assistance did they have? I mean, I worked in Hollywood briefly, so I understand as far as what executive producers do, what they don't do, how much they time they spend. They usually got a lot of projects, and I know that can be a little bit daunting task for them, but how great was it to work with them, and how much assistance did they provide in both the book and the film? Up until the studio got involved, they were financing the the doc out of their own pockets. They were very involved early on. They've always been incredibly supportive. And, you know, they're working with us now and turning it into a narrative television series. And it's it's great working with them. Point Gray and James Weaver and Josh Fagan, all really great team over there. And you've seen what they've done over the past few years. They've got at least three shows on the, on air right now, yeah. which is incredible. And hopefully this will be the next one. 
Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it when it finally does hit as a television series. I wonder who you will cast as Tom Kalinske and obviously the, the cast and crew over at Sega Japan, obviously the whole dichotomy of who's working at Nintendo at that period of time, who you all the key players. It's going to be very interesting who you cast indeed. And I'm definitely going to be looking forward to it. Again, I have Blake Harris and Jonah Tulis of Console Wars. You got to check it out today. The awesome documentary. I highly recommend it. It's available right now on CBS All Access. Get it now. Don't wait till CBS All Access becomes Paramount Plus. Just watch it now. Watch it now. <laughs> and then after that, if you want a, more of a deep dive, you got to go ahead and grab the book from Barnes and Noble or Amazon. It's Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation. It's available right now. Audio paperback, hardcover, whatever your flavor is, just go ahead and read that book because it's a great deep dive. The documentary is great in of itself. Guys, I truly appreciate it. I feel like staying at a comfort inn right now. I don't know why, but you know, I'm just going to go ahead and think about that. But guys, it's been so... Well, okay, there's a reason why, but you have to watch the film. I will tell you this. It's been such an honor to speak to both of you guys. I'm hoping to get you back on, hopefully when the TV series comes about and see what we can do to set things up there. But I wish you guys can... Thank you. I wish you guys continued success with all your projects. And I look forward to speaking to you both right here at the Pop Culture Cosmos. If you need your video game fix, be sure to check out Retro City Games. Located in Town Square on Las Vegas Boulevard or in Henderson, Nevada, Retro City Games has the cure for all your video game vices. Retro games and games for current consoles, Nintendo, Sega, PlayStation, Xbox, and more. Retro City Games has all the staples from any library and some highly collectible offerings too. So pick up a few games today at Retro City Games in Town Square on Las Vegas Boulevard or in Henderson, Nevada. Retro City Games is your video game metropolis. And we're back to close out the PCC Multiverse. This is Gerald Glassford along with my good friend Marcus De La Garza. Speaking of video games, zombies are coming back to Call of Duty because it's Treyarch, developer this time around for the latest rendition of Call of Duty Black Ops. Get rid of the Black Ops, please. Cold War. Call of Duty, Old War. I like that. Um, yeah, but I want to ask you this. They're bringing back zombies. I think the sixth or seventh time that they brought back zombies, not just Treyarch, but once Treyarch had any success with it in the World of War game in 2009, sometimes it's clicked, sometimes it's not. Are you excited to go back and play zombies once again in Call of Duty? Yeah, absolutely. I, I assumed we were going to be doing some multiplayer zombie action online together. But if not, you got to let me know now because it's something I, I really enjoyed from World at War. I enjoyed it in the subsequent games. I did take a break from Call of Duty, so I didn't get to see the last two iterations of zombies here. But I do want to say that I'm very excited about this one. I don't think it's overplayed. I don't think we're over the zombies yet. Just watching the revealed trailer, it got me very excited for it. It sounds like you're not wholly sold on the zombies, though, Gerald. I don't know, because I just got finished trying out the latest update for Left 4 Dead 2 called The Last Stand. I just got finished playing with that. I enjoyed my time there. I compare that to what I've played before in COD Zombies. All right. But to me, I I like the fast action that Left 4 Dead 2 throws at you and the pure chaos that can happen. I'll give it a try. Call of Duty as a game we're so excited for. Obviously, the intrigue, the campaign, I'm really excited about. The multiplayer is always going to be fun with whatever variants they have. Zombies, I'm going to have to see if I can get back into it because, like I said, I had a blast getting back into Left 4 Dead 2, so I'm hoping that I will be able to have the same when it comes to Call of Duty. If I get back into the Cold War, that will really be something that I'm looking forward to is 
playing against zombies. What are your thoughts out there on Call of Duty returning to zombies once again? Share us your thoughts. PopCultureCosmos at Yahoo.com. Well, I want to thank Jonah Tulis and Blake J. Harris for stopping by on the program today. Wish them all the best and success with their upcoming TV series based on Console Wars, the book that they're also developing as well with Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen. But again, if you can catch their documentary right now on CBS All Access, or you can get Blake J. Harris's book, Console Wars, everywhere you get your books. Wish them tremendous success. So thankful for them coming on the show today. But before we head on out, my friend, how's this been sounding, my friend? My Rocket ELO 7.1 USB. I think it's been great. You know, I made the mistake of telling you before we got on the show, I thought it was better than your other headset, which is apparently a little more expensive and has a few more features. But I do think it's been outstanding to listening to it today. And and your mic quality has been on a different level this week. Let's just call it that. Listen to various things, 7.1 tests. So I've got a lot of thoughts on it. I'm going to be sharing it this weekend on popculturecosmos.com. So you want to check that review out coming up there. Right now, barring any other things that are coming out there, I am going to give this a pretty good review, especially the fact that this unit, it's a wired unit. There is a wireless unit available, but this is a wired unit. My unit that I have right now that you're watching on Facebook Live, it's, again, the Rocket R-O-C-C-A-T. Hilo 7.1 USB surround sound RGB gaming headset. It's got the light up different colors. You see it's going on right now on Facebook Live. The wired version is $69.99. The Elo 7.1 Air, which is the wireless version, that's at $99.99. They have a stereo version at $20 less at $49.99. It's coming out, the wired version, on the 4th. So you want to go ahead and get your pre-orders in today, or if you're listening to this on the 4th or after, go ahead and pick it up. Amazon, I've seen already listings at Target, Best Buy, all these places that you're gonna go ahead and buy your gaming headsets. It's been a very solid value. I've really enjoyed my time with it, and I cannot thank Rocket and Turtle Beach, the parent company, for going ahead and sending this over on the unboxing I did live. So I've had a great time to work with it, and if you get a chance, check out my full review and my full thoughts on both the pluses and if there's any minuses on the Rocket 7.1 ELO USB headset. Check it out this weekend at popculturecosmos.com. My friend, it's been a great episode. Cannot thank you enough for joining me. Among Us, you wanted to talk about before we head on out. Yeah, I just want to give a quick shout out to the game. It's blowing up worldwide right now. And it's, it seems to be that it got popular in Korea first and the rest of the world followed suit. It's a fun game. If you guys haven't played it yet, you got to find out who the imposter is on your crew. You're in on a spaceship. You walk around and you've got tasks to perform, and people randomly end up dead. And you've got to call some meetings and figure out who the imposter is that's walking around killing your crewmates. So, if you haven't taken a stab at it yet, it's free on iOS and Android. It's five dollars on Steam, and it's worth it. Way, 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 way worth it. I'm starting to play with some friends now, and it's just a good way to have something to do. <laughs> it's been a great party game. Like yeah. you said, yeah. The game came out two years ago and it didn't do anything, but it took, unfortunately, a coronavirus and everybody's staying at home to find and explore new things. And one of the things that people have been exploring more and reaping the benefits of is the video game industry, which has grown by leaps and heights in this unfortunate time. And people are looking for new games to get into or different games that were released to get into. And it looks like Among Us has been a big hit now 
finally, after two years of release, a lot of people are really getting into it. And if you enjoyed your time like Marcus has, please share us your thoughts on Among Us, Pop Culture Cosmos at yahoo.com. And don't forget to support the studio. If you can afford the $2 to pay for the, the non-ad version, support the studio. They've already announced Among Us 2, and they're going to keep the servers running for Among Us 1 until the last player stops playing. So for Marcus De La Garza, this is Gerald Glassford. It's another beautiful day in paradise right here in the PCC multiverse. Thank you for listening. And here's hoping you have yourself a great Welcome to the Double Feature Picture Show. What do you want to see? Well, I want to see something really good and something really bad. Like maybe Total Recall and Junior? Sure. Or The Rocketeer and Country Bears? Absolutely. Maybe even Dogma and Yoga Hoses? I mean, of course. Who programs such cinematic excellence and hot garbage together? Why, only the Double-Edge Double Bill, my good man. Available on the ESO Network and wherever you get podcasts. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Tangentbound Network. Let your voice be heard. Tangentboundnetwork.com Thanks so much for downloading the Pop Culture Cosmos and stay tuned as more great podcasts are on the way. Thanks again for listening to us here at the Pop Culture Cosmos.